time. Thank y'all for singing out with us and being here today. If you had a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew 6, uh, verse 5 through 10 will be our text for today. Before we get there, we'll have some scriptures up on the screen for everybody to see uh, that you're welcome to turn to when we, uh, when we show them or make notes of them for uh, study um, later on. But uh, Matthew 6 will be our text really for the, next, for the day and, and for the next week or so. Um, and uh, what an awesome song uh, to, uh, to sing, especially in light of the resurrection promise and hope that we have uh, because of Easter. Uh, Jesus raises us from sin. He raises us from shame, forgives us and washes us clean. Uh, and one day he will raise us to our eternal and heavenly home, all that believe and trust in him. What an awesome promise to sing about and to come together and get excited about. Um, and we're going to be building on more of that promise today. But first, speaking of awesome music, I never go uh, far without some of these. Of course, as you can tell, I have a little too many of these. Um, I think everybody knows what these are. These are headphones, uh, particularly these are um, Apple headphones that I've uh, acquired through the years. If I had every pair with me, um, most of them are in a drawer at home looking like this, but these are the last three pair that uh, I was graciously given when I buy one of the new products. Of course, uh, it didn't cost them much to give me that, right? Um, but uh, I've acquired a lot of those through the years, um, and I'm sure you all have uh, plenty of headphones as well. Um, I was never too big into CD players or listening to music. Um, uh, when I was on the go as a kid, but as a teenager, I got my first iPod um, about 15, 16 years ago. And uh, the first pair of those white headphones um, that everybody knows and loves and they get tangled up in everybody's pockets or bags. Um, and ever since I've had a pair on my person, no matter what. Uh, and again, I usually put more than one or more than one or two in my bag. And that's why they end up looking like spaghetti. But of course, these headphones, uh, they come in all shapes, all sizes. Uh, my favorite pair of headphones, I have these Sony over-the-ear headphones, but I can't ever wear them because they mess my hair up and I got to be presentable all the time. Um, and um, so I have them, paid some money for them, but I can't wear them unless I'm about to go to bed and I'm not going to be seeing anybody um, for until the next day. Um, so if I, look, if I do wear them and take them off, I look like one of those troll dolls from the 90s. My hair goes straight up. It doesn't look long, but it is pretty long whenever it's not where it should be. So thankfully uh, for Christmas, I got a pair of wireless earbuds uh, that uh, they, are, they are in their own league and I don't have it with me, but those are, those are a very, very great product worth, uh, worth the money um, for them, especially if you like listening to music, uh, listen to podcasts. Uh, you can subscribe to Risen Church NC on your favorite podcast app, by the way. Um, makes voices sound a whole lot better than they do in person even. Uh, but uh, these, these headphones, they are just so perfect. They, uh, the music and, and, and whatever, listening to audio or radio um, interviews or whatever. Um, the noise cancellation is out of this world. If you've used them before, you know you can't, you can't beat them. Um, but when you wear them, it, it literally makes you feel like you're unplugged from the world. Uh, I mean, they, they, they tune out every noise. I mean, a siren can be going off. That's why you shouldn't wear them while you're driving. I don't do that, but you see people with headphones in. I'm like, I hope those are not noise-canceling headphones because you can't hear a thing when you wear those things. Machinery, all that's tuned out. People, that's tuned out. Uh, so when you're wearing those headphones and even regular headphones, if you turn them up loud enough, uh, it, it, it just completely tunes out anybody and anything else and makes you immersed into what you're listening to. Um, which brings me to a much larger point that I kind of want to talk about today, um, because I think it can be true that whether you've got headphones or not, you can kind of get lost into what you're listening to. You can kind of get immersed into what you're tuned or plugged into. We can very easily get lost in or become preoccupied with whatever we're listening to. And not just when we're intentionally listening to music with headphones, it, it can be a passive thing. The things that we're around, the people that we're around, the environments that we're in, the noises we hear, the things that we hear, they become part of us. 
Things that we're consuming begin to consume us. I hate to get it started on the wrong, wrong foot today, but I think you'll agree with me about yourself. And if you don't agree with this about yourself, I believe your spouse or your kids would agree with you or your parents would agree with you and, and they might help convince you that it's true. Um, and you probably believe it about them, don't you? That we are very easily, we are very easily impressed. We are very impressionable creatures. We are very easily influenced and quickly are impacted by what we plug into whether we realize it or not. And it's often pretty subtle, isn't it? The substance of whatever we're listening to, whether it's a channel or a station or a person or an idea, we are very easily influenced and immersed into what we're listening to. And, and you could say that what we tune into, we eventually turn into or turn towards. It's inevitable. There's, there's a really powerful story in the Old Testament that I want to kind of get us started with today. Um, set during the time of the divided kingdom, when Judah had spun off to its own nation from Israel, the two kings uh, met together for a temporary truce because of a common enemy from Syria. As they were preparing for their response to this threat, the king of Judah, who was a well-meaning but not really devoted believer, Jehoshaphat, uh, he began to think maybe they should seek God for advice, the God of Abraham, the God of Moses, the God of David, the God of Solomon, before the nation had went into other gods and following other idols. Jehoshaphat said, maybe we should pray to the God of uh, our fathers and our forefathers and our, of our ancestors. Uh, maybe we should seek his advice. Uh, and, and as they kind of got more planned, planned out and they began to strategize about what they were going to do, he began very, became very worried that his partner, King Ahab, didn't really know what he was getting himself into. So he says to Ahab, king of Israel, he says, let's pray about this first. And Ahab says, we'll do better than pray. I've got 400 prophets of Baal I can call on at any time. And when I ask them something, they give me an instantaneous answer. And it's always exactly what I want to hear. And I have more than one of them, even though they would all give me the same answer. Because when I have all 400 tell me what I want them to want them to say and what I want to hear it is so powerful I turn that station up and it's like I'm getting lost in their words now the thing about Baal worship if you know anything about if you've studied the Old Testament Baal was a construct of culture uh, Baal, what his beliefs were, what his, his commandments were, they always agreed with what felt best and sounded easiest, which of course, why wouldn't you sign up for that religion, right? Uh, it always agreed with your flesh. But there was this rotten, untold history about Baal, Baal worship, that decisions that Baal seemed to bless almost always caused and created a big mess. And the only people who ever came out unscathed were the rich and the powerful. It was almost like Baal was a cover-up for the people that were corrupt and in charge, seen and unseen in this world. Hmm. Now, eventually, even the kings and priests who claimed to represent him would find themselves digging their own graves, which is exactly what happens in that story. But first, the story goes that Ahab calls on the prophets of Baal, all 400 of them, and the king of Israel said to them, shall I go to battle against Ramoth Gilead or shall I refrain? And they said, go up for the Lord, speaking of Baal, will give it into the hand of the king. Of course they have. Whatever you want, Baal says you should do it. So Jehoshaphat hears these 400 robotic unison men telling Ahab what he wants to hear, what he already had planned on doing anyway. And Jehoshaphat's a little bit disturbed and, and he interjects. He says, is there not here another prophet of the Lord, as in the Jewish God, Yahweh? 
Is there not a prophet of the one true God that we can inquire? And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, but I hate him. At least he's being honest. I, you know, there's this one guy, he, all, he used to preach at me and come at me and write me letters and always, you know, come out with, with the word of God, but I hate his guts. Well, why do you hate him? For he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. He always tells me what I want to do is wrong. And he always tells me that God has a different plan. And I don't want to do what that God wants me to do because that God wants to take from me and wants me to obey this and not do that. And I don't want to, I don't want to miss out on the fun. I'm not going to listen to him. <laughs> and Jehoshaphat says, just say it ain't so, Ahab. Eventually, Jehoshaphat finds the last prophet of God in the land, Micaiah, who comes and challenges Ahab's questionable plans. Ahab orders that one of his guys rough Micaiah up. And if you read the story, it's really fascinating. Micaiah gets punched in the mouth. Literally, he gets punched in the face and he gets apprehended and seized and silenced. Ahab ends up going into battle like he planned. He loses his life in a completely avoidable situation. Jehoshaphat barely escapes with his life. But Ahab dies all because he was plugged into these 400 voices that repeated the same nonsense over and over and over again. And Jehoshaphat gets away from there, tremendously shaken up about the whole situation and especially about his inability to discern God's will. His lack of understanding about what prayer is all about and that this only got one person in the whole country really knew what it was all about. So he vows to change things about his life. Chronicles tells us after this that King Jehoshaphat was afraid and he set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all of Judea, all of Judah. And that's why we remember Jehoshaphat, not for that little skirmish with Ahab and that little dark, embarrassing story, but we remember him because he led the nation in revival. He led the nation in prayer as they faced another threat. And this fast was about making the nation depend on God, emptying themselves of themselves and totally putting their faith in God, learning to seek and know his will. Ironically, thanks to Ahab, Jehoshaphat learned the secret about prayer. That prayer isn't about forcing our will or telling God what we want. It's about hearing and seeking God's will for us. If you don't listen to anything else I've got to say for the next 20 minutes or so, that is enough for you to understand what this sermon and what this series is all about. Jehoshaphat began filling his mind with godly things and influences from scripture to people so that he would be inclined to seek the Lord and not reclined in his own flesh and ideas. Now, this has been a story that's been a lot to me for years and it's spoken to me for years because our minds are constantly consuming and processing so much in our world. And we desperately need to filter out all of this through somebody that knows better than us. Prayer is something that we all know is important, but I feel like we don't take full advantage of it. More specifically, we don't make proper use of it. I, I think in the shadow of Easter, it's the perfect time to talk about prayer. And for a number of reasons, Easter, which has brought us into a relationship with God, that Jesus' death and resurrection brings us to God, gives us access to God. Hebrews chapter four says, we with confidence can draw near to the throne of grace that we may find help. So what better time and what better season to talk about prayer than here and now? And beyond just the opportunity that this gives us, we also know that this is an obligation. If we're going to maintain and possess a functioning relationship with God, we must have a prayer life. Because isn't it true for any relationship, communication is key. 
essential, vital even? How's it work out when you don't communicate with people that you should communicate with? Usually there's a breakdown in the relationship, isn't there? Spouse, children, friends, coworkers, partners, you've got to communicate. And I don't know, but if we're in a relationship with God, the creator of the universe, I'd think communication with him is extremely important. Don't you? Yet our flesh fights this more than it fights anything because it's afraid we might plug into a different channel and it might lose us. But if Easter is the season that we celebrate being found by God, may we also be found seeking him and in communication with him. We've talked about over the Easter season how Jesus came to take our place to share with us his place before God. Hebrews just told us that we have access to God through him. He is our advocate. And part of his advocacy is that he taught us so much and he left behind so much for us to take and adopt into our life and our following Christ, our following the Lord. One thing that Jesus left an indelible impact on people with regard, was with regard to how he talked to God regarding the confidence that he addressed God and prayed to God with. On one occasion, and you're familiar with this story, on one occasion when he raised Lazarus from the dead, he said, hey, I want you to remove the stone. People were laughing. People were making fun of him. People were saying, Jesus, you're just bringing up memories that we were just now getting over. I mean, this isn't, this is, why are you doing this? It's insensitive. When everybody thought he had lost his mind, this is a little moment where Jesus steps over to the side and talks to God. So when they took away the stone, Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you. I thank you that you have heard me. I mean, why why is he doing this? He says, I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. So Jesus made it very clear to everybody that he had access to God and God talked to him. Now, if Jesus hadn't went on to die and raise from the dead, these are the words of a delusional man and a deranged man but clearly they're the words of the son of God, aren't they? And even before he died and was raised, Jesus went about talking to God and speaking for God in a way that made everyone marvel. Everyone that wanted, everyone wanted the kind of relationship with God that he had, if that was even obtainable, but Jesus said it was. Everyone wanted to be able to pray and connect with God like he did. The religious system had been trying to achieve this level of communication and confidence for ages Clearly, Jesus had it, and the question was, could we have it? Can you have it? So on one occasion, the disciples approached Jesus and asked, hoping that he would share his secrets with them. Matthew's version of this message is found here in Matthew 16, but Luke uh, clues us in that they actually set Jesus up for this sermon. That in Luke's version, they say, Lord, would you teach us to pray? Because they watched him pray and they listened to him pray. And clearly he had an effective and infectious way of talking to God and walking with God. They asked him, we want to pray like you pray. We want to commune with God like you can. We want to walk with God like you do. And don't you want that kind of walk with God? If it's possible, if it's achievable. And Jesus said it was. And if the secret is prayer, don't you want to learn how to pray like Jesus prayed. So maybe these are the words that you can make your own today. We want to be in tune with God like you so that we might always be turned towards God and walking with God. Now, these people were honest enough to admit they didn't know how to pray and they weren't praying right. But I got a hunch that if somebody suggests to most of us that we aren't praying properly, we might get offended, I'd imagine. Today's conversation in the next couple of weeks about prayer might offend some of us. 
But I promise you, if anybody knows about prayer, it's Jesus. And if we're being honest, most of us have a prayer life about like Ahab. We just sort of listen to whatever religious soundbite confirms what we already want to be true. And like Jehoshaphat, we have never maybe understood what it means to seek the Lord's will. But on this side of Easter, we don't have to be in the dark anymore. Because Jesus can teach us how to pray. He can, if we're willing to listen and potentially be corrected. You know, Jesus' prayers were so different. They were less scripted, they were intimate, they were personal, they were passionate. He would invite his disciples to pray with him because he wanted them to listen and understand that they didn't have it right, and he did. He wanted to draw this question to them from them because he knew they were so lost on this. He wanted them to say, Jesus, teach us to pray. And of course they did, which is why before he tells us how to pray, he tells us how not to pray. Look at Matthew 5 or Matthew 6, verse number five. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. So Jesus, can you teach us how to pray? Yeah, but I got to teach you how not to pray first. Because a lot of people are giving y'all some bad examples and a lot of y'all are in the wrong, on the wrong road. And I know this might not be what you want to hear, but I got to tell you this because there's so much wrong stuff in the world about prayer. I mean, if Jesus begins his sermon about prayer by telling us what prayer isn't, then that must be a pretty big deal, isn't it? Before he tells them how to pray, he tells them how not to pray. He says, do not be like those, the hypocrites, for they love standing, they love to pray standing in synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen, underline that, that they may be seen by men. They do it to be seen. And he says, I tell you, they have their reward. God is not hearing them. This is Jesus, not me, so don't get mad at me. God isn't hearing them. God is never gonna hear them if they keep that up. Their reward is the applaud applause and praise of men and that must be what they're after because they know better and if they don't know better they do now Jesus states up in front that we'll know that we'll never that we never should drift to this place he had zero tolerance for pretenders and pretentious people pretentious people that think they're better than everybody else People that were already convinced they knew about God more than anybody else, wanted to flaunt that knowledge before others. They pray and practice their religion out loud to be seen in a flashy, condescending way to guise the fact, listen, to guise the fact that their prayers are never answered and that they gain man's applause in the process, which to them compensates for their disconnect with God. That they've settled for man's applause because they know God isn't hearing them and they're okay with that. Their reward isn't intimacy with God, it's celebratory status before men. Now, there are two categories that might get offended by what Jesus said and by expansion of his teaching. The pretenders or the paraders and the parade attendees. First, more on the paraders. If if you're someone who's wrapped up in settling for man's applause, come on, don't you want a genuine connection with God? Wouldn't that be much better than somebody's admiration? whether through applause or social media clicks. And the world baits us into this more than ever, doesn't it? To get empty praise. Secondly, at every parade, there's an audience. Who are there because they are attracted to spectacle? They enjoy seeing others do what they think they can't do. Sometimes we get deceived by pretenders and we become their defenders. But we ought to not be deceived by those trying to win our applause because they haven't allowed Jesus to teach them how to truly reach God and Satan will use them to keep us away from God. So beware. 
Jesus wants you to flee from this. It's like your mama taught you. Don't be impressed by how people dress. Again, if you're one of these who thinks it's about presenting yourself as uber-religious and with God's revelation on your tongue, why are you doing that? Don't you want more? Like an actual relationship with God? Because if you had that, Jesus said you'd be doing it differently. Now, he's a little bit easier on us in verse 6. But when you pray. So notice he talked about when we pray. So Jesus is going to quickly reveal to us the when, the why, the how, and the to whom. That's what we're going to get out of the next few minutes. The disciples know Jesus would challenge and correct their ideas. They knew they were doing it wrong. The religious leaders, maybe they had it right. Jesus says, no, 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 they have it wrong. They would tell the average person, God isn't responding to you because you need to believe more and you need to sin less. They clicked their heels together and looked holy, but they were empty. But again, they made a big deal about it because God was not impressed with it, clearly. Jesus tells us what God is in fact impressed with though. He says, when you pray, go into your room and when you have shut your door, go to your room and close the door. What room? Your room. It's not not a special place. It could be a closet or a cupboard or just some random room in your house. Go to your room where it's just you. Close the door. The emphasis is get away from anybody and everybody before you go anywhere and do anything else in the day. Now, there's two extremes that Jesus addresses here. We often tout this, oh, I can pray anywhere thing. And I'm not saying you can't pray anywhere because you can talk to God wherever you're at. Doesn't mean it's working. We often tout that we can pray anywhere, but Jesus says, if you want to pray effectively, and don't you want to pray effectively? You should pray privately with priority, as in before you do anything else, unplugged from everything else. Privately, priority, and unplugged. Now, the other extreme is this dismantles the idea that you have to pray in some holy place, a church, a dedicated facility where there's candles and special signs and singers. Don't have to do that. Don't need that. Jesus says, if you want to isolate yourself in an ordinary place, prepare for an extraordinary experience. What does he say? Shut your door, pray to your father who is in the secret place, and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. You know why he says he emphasizes how God is unseen? God is not seen in this world. He's not locked behind religion. He's definitely not in culture. So what is Jesus saying here? If we're going to connect with an invisible God, we're going to have to disconnect from the visible world. That make sense? If we're going to connect with the invisible God who is not revealed in this world, we're going to have to disconnect from the visible world. As in no distractions, no deceptions. And if you're seeking him out, Jesus says, I want you to seek him out as father. Is he king, almighty, sovereign? Yes, but he invites you to know him in a relational and personal and intimate way. Prayer is a private conversation between you and your heavenly father, wherein you should not be distracted and you are not distanced from him. Think about what Jesus sets up here. God sees us praying alone. This is his opportunity to reveal himself to us in a way that will truly make a difference, nothing competing for our attention or our affection. 
And what is the whole premise here? That we are confident that God sees and hears us and we will obtain clarity to see and hear him. That's why you go in your room and you close the door and you get away from any distraction and you prioritize and unplug because you know God hears you and your goal is to hear and see him. Okay, so I've got the where and the how. Is it time to start using the magic words and ask for whatever I want? Now, that might, be, might not be your question, but somebody in his audience was thinking, okay, Jesus, when do I say the magic words? When do I get what I want? Okay, I got the where, I got the how. What about the what? Jesus says, I'm not done. Verse seven, and when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathens do, for they think they are heard for their many words. Repetition doesn't move God. Fancy language does not move God. There are no magic words, no secret tongue that fast tracks his response. Some say, well, intellect matters. People want to make you feel like you're just, you know, that your intelligent level is down here when they pray because they have such lofty wisdom and words and that, God bless them for doing that, but it doesn't, ma- doesn't make a difference. Some people say there's spiritual gifts that are important for prayer. God is not impressed by any of that. Jesus told a parable over in Luke that backs this up. He told a parable about some, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He says, there was two men that went up to the temple, want to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And this Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. And I want you to notice this here. If you didn't know that said Pharisee, and you didn't already know that Pharisees were kind of the bad guys, you might think this is a good prayer. Maybe. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I'm not like the extortioners or the unjust or the adulterers. I'm not like the tax collectors. God, I'm so good. I wasn't born there and I don't look like that and I don't go there and I don't do those things. God, I'm just so holy and I'm so glad that I've got access to you and they don't. Now, clearly Jesus is emphasizing the arrogance here, but you see what he's doing. I mean, this guy continues. He says, Lord, I give you, I fast. I give tithes of all that I've got. See, the Pharisee could be any of us in our different denominations if we think that makes us more spiritual than others. I mean, Baptists, we, I mean, we, we, have, we are so obedient. We come to church so much and we, so we, we want to make sure we obey the Bible. Does that mean God's going to hear us? More likely, no. Charismatics, oh, they've got more faith. And they've got gifts. Does that mean God's going to hear them? More likely, no. Not according to Jesus. Liturgicals, they're, they're formal and they're traditional in their language. Does that mean God's going to hear them? More likely, no. I mean, don't we all profess to believe that, that, that having access to God is a gift? And if... If it's a gift, why do we act like we're bringing something to God that makes us different or makes us special? If God gave it to us, then of course, he's the one that gave it to us. We shouldn't brag about it. It's a gift. Unless we've mutated the gifts into personal accomplishments and then we're just like the Pharisees, aren't we? Boasting of what we've done and how much better we do it. Expecting God to turn on the pneumatic tube anytime and give us what we want because we're so good. But Jesus goes on. He says, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, this man went home justified. This man was humbled and would be exalted because he trusted his life into the hands of his God. The tax collector's short and simple and sincere prayer denoted true righteousness, true fellowship with God. What we learn from Jesus' primer on prayer is this. How we pray is a whole lot more important than what we pray for. 
Never thought about that, have we? How we pray is a whole lot more important than what we pray for because how we pray will determine what we pray for. Jesus is only like them. They make it all about length and style and eloquence. They're trying to earn and impress God. How they pray reveals they know wise are resting in, trusting in, relying on. They're not dependent on God. They're bragging to him. This goes back to their sin less and believe more mantra. Their posture before God was as if he relied on them. And they wanted to butter God up because they thought that by doing that, God would be more likely to give them what they wanted. But then Jesus addresses that in verse eight. Therefore, do not be like them. Because he says they're doing that because they think God's gonna smile at them and give them more stuff. Oh God, look how good I'm at. Have you seen what I've been doing lately? God, of course God sees it. But that doesn't mean he's more likely to give you something. That's not what prayer is about. Oh, we didn't know that, Jesus. Well, I'm glad you asked me to teach you how to pray. What does he say? Do not be like them, for your father knows the things you need, have need of before you ask him. Huh. You mean prayer isn't some game where I've got to come to God and I've got to make sure I look holy before him and I've got to butter him up just so then when I ask him my grocery list of stuff, he'll be more likely to give it to me? No! God knows what you need. Before you even ask him, you don't even have to ask. What's the point of prayer? Hold on. Jesus puts to rest the idea that God is waiting on us to ask for the right thing, deserve the right thing. His whole reasoning for saying when you pray, don't come with your accomplishments, don't try to impress God, is because God knows what you need. To which we say, if prayer isn't about me shaking the heavenly tree, trying to get what I want to fall down, then what's the point? If this is your serious question, don't feel bad because we're all there, I think. If God knows what I already need, then why should I pray at all? I mean, I only pray because I want something. I mean, let's be honest. If prayer isn't about asking, then why am I praying? I never said it wasn't about asking. It just might not be about asking what you've been told to ask for. Alas, Jesus has been waiting on us to ask these very questions. He almost manufactures this tension so that he can get us to ask these questions because we've made prayer about a grocery list. And just the thought that someone would suggest that prayer isn't about saying or reciting some repetition shakes a lot of us up. Jesus is trying to save us from getting this wrong because religion is constantly trying to push us down the wrong pathway. And this private priority the private priority side of prayer will make a lot more sense as this tension gets more and more real. Jesus is here not to dismiss prayer as unimportant, but to restore the true importance of prayer. Because after all, Jesus prayed, didn't he? Jesus asked for things. But what did he ask for? And what should we ask for? Now, I hope God has your attention because I think this is gonna pay off. Maybe you've been doing it wrong. Maybe we've been doing it wrong, but not for much longer. He's deconstructed our beliefs and now he's created this tension In verse nine, in this manner, therefore pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus, I want you to focus on this one thing about prayer. That prayer is not about coming before God with your list of what I've done and what I want. Prayer is not even about consumption at all. It's about concentration. It's not about an Amazon order to heaven. It's about concentrating on your heavenly father. 
so that you might dwell on who God is and be freed from your dependence on anyone or anything less. Be released from the anxiety that comes from not having a hallowed name to hold on to and one who's holding on to you. Now, the idea that we are referring to God as our Father may give some, some maybe tense for some, but God has proven himself trustworthy. He's commended his love toward us. He bids us to call on him as Father. The infinite Almighty can be known intimately and affectionately. So what is he trying to say? The number one purpose of prayer is that we might pause and press play on a new track, recognize who God is, remember that we are his and realize why we exist. Who is God? Your heavenly father. So who are you? His child. Why do you exist? To hallow or glorify his name. Before you move too quickly in your prayers, don't speed past this. And it might slow down the rest of your prayers. And that might be a good thing. Prayer is not about incantations. It's about recentering our lives around God and resting in him. If your prayers have been reduced to constantly coming to God with some pleasantries, with some gratitudes and platitudes, and then a list of requests, prayer is not doing anything but making you more anxious because you wonder if God's going to listen and give you what you're asking for. And if he doesn't, you feel like something's wrong with you. Isn't it true? Am I saying that God never responds to our request? No. Jesus does tell us what kind of request to make. Verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done. So rather than going to God with what we've done, who we are, with what we want, we go to God talking about who he is and talking about what he wants. what he wants. Prayer is not about imposing. It's about surrendering. But what about me? What about my? Jesus says, I'm not dismissing you. What did I say in verse eight? Your father knows what you need. Don't think God's telling you he doesn't care about what you want. He knows what you need. He just wants you to pray this right here. Because maybe he knows what you need more than you know what you need. Maybe. Prayer is about surrender. Confessing that we want what God wants. Being convinced, not trying to convince. And I know this triggers our flesh, doesn't it? Because we worry that God's will might not equal our will. I hear you. But just work with me here. What does verse 8 promise us? Before Jesus ever teaches us how to pray, he knows us. He knows we're going to be worried about this. So what does verse 8 tell us before he ever tells us how to pray? Don't worry. God knows what you need. So i got to ask you a question. Are you willing to trust God on 6-8 and still pray 6-10? Are you willing to Avoid the temptation of dragging verse 8 down and putting it in verse 10's place. And saying, okay, God, here's what I want. Here's what I need. I know, I know you've got your plans, but my plans are real important. Are you willing to trust God with what he said in verse 8 and still pray verse 10 without batting an eye that his will is best? Think of everything you could ever ask for and imagine getting it. Imagine that you could ask for everything your heart could ever desire. 
And imagine if God would give it to you like that. Listen, God's will, if contrary to that, is still better. It is. Scares you to say that out loud, I know. Do you believe that? Are you willing to trust him if he says so? Simply knowing God is better than anything you could ever get from him. Trusting his plan is greater than getting yours. It may be his will, but it might not. So it's best to ask for less and trust him for more because what he plans to give you is far more than you could ever ask for or want. More than you could ever desire, more than your flesh compromises. You know why you can trust Jesus on this? Because Jesus himself wrestled through this and used this prayer, used prayer to trust his life into God's hands. What happened the night before Jesus died? He prayed, Abba or Daddy, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And if we pray from any other posture, we're not doing it right. Because you know what hung in the balance of that prayer? You. We'll only ever be disappointed and deceived if we don't pray like this. If prayer is anything but an act of surrender, it becomes an act of resistance. But why resist the God of the universe who invites you to call him Father? Why resist or worry over the plans designed by your good, trustworthy, heavenly Father? Why not take the hand of him? Why not bow to him? I mean, physically and literally go in your closet in the morning before anything else and bow before him and remind your heart and remind your flesh and rebuke your mind that God is in control and you want what he wants more than you want anything else. So we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in through my life. Here's my life, have your way. Until our wills are surrendered, we are just consumers. Religion is always on the precipice of turning faith into consumerism. Maybe that's what you've reduced your faith down to. But don't you think God is more than just a vending machine that sometimes gives you what you want? Come on, if... He loves us, of course, but his plans are so much bigger than us. Prayer is not about competing for his attention. It's about surrendering to him and enjoying, I mean, enjoying his will and his kingdom because it's better than anything we could ever imagine. Because what does verse eight say? He knows what you need. So two words to remember when you pray. Remember and surrender. Remember who he is, remember who you are, and surrender to his will. We must begin each day this way so that we don't end each day a different way. It's because we don't begin each day remembering and surrendering. We often end each day saying, help me and give me and save me. Those are pre-salvation prayers. Sadly, church trains people to beg for God's attention even after they're saved and pray prayers like that even after they're saved as if we don't already have God's attention and we already haven't been given his affection, but we don't have to live like this. We can live with confidence that we have God's affection and therefore we should give him our attention, declare our dependence on him early and often. So here's the summary. Go in a room in the morning, shut the door, unplug from the world, plug into him, remember and surrender and breathe. Because you know what happens when you do that? You're free. You're free. 
When you go to him, you're alone, you're unplugged, you're tuned in, you remember, you surrender, you are free from the world and from expectations that don't meet God's will. Every single day, get alone. Don't wait till you're in your car at work in a mess, in distress or super stressed. Don't bring a list, just bring yourself. Remember and recognize, surrender and prioritize. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. And I, I know, I know, I know, fear keeps us from doing this. But that's exactly what God's trying to save us from. Jesus ends this chapter over in verse 31. He says, therefore, do not worry saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? If I don't ask, what if God doesn't give it to me? What if God doesn't give me what he already knows I need? Well, that doesn't make sense. He already knows. So maybe I don't even have to worry about it. Maybe I don't even have to ask him. Maybe I can just trust in his will and know that his will is going to be best. Do not worry, for after these things the pagans seek. Your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. All these things may be different for all of you, but you know what? God knows and God cares and God loves you. But what does verse 33 say? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So will you trust God with verse 8 and will you still pray verse 10? If we would just live this way, there would be an aura about our lives, a soundtrack over our lives. If we would just tune into him, our hearts would be turned towards him. We would be turned and transformed into the child of God we were made to be. It begins with remembering who he is, recognizing his glory, his greater plans for you. Trusting him. Trusting in verse 8 and stepping out and surrendering to verse 10. And prioritize living that way. It's okay to remind him every once in a while. But it's more important that you remember all the time. But here's the deal. We won't live this way until we pray this way. You know how I know that's true? Because we aren't living this way and we aren't praying this way. And that's the reason. We won't live in freedom until we pray and surrender. A lot of us, we don't even pray anymore because we just wonder if God even listens to us. We wonder if God's even going to give us what we want or part of what we want. We feel bad about asking because we know he might not say yes. And we worry, do I have enough faith? Do I pray the right way? Jesus has just freed you from all that. He says, I just want you to trust me. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. If you want freedom, get in your room alone, unplugged with priority and pray those four simple sentences. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And if you need to repeat verse eight, repeat verse eight if it helps you. God, you know what I need. I'm trusting that into your hands. I want what you want. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this. For some of us, it's a correction. For some of us, you have corrected how we should pray. And I pray that we would accept your will. I pray we would admit that we've been doing it wrong and that we will start doing it the way you want us to do it. For some of us, we've avoided being used by you because we've avoided praying like this. For some of us, we've lived a life of anxiety and fear and dread because we have never prayed like this. God, I, I'm not 
sure that everybody is going to jump up and say, okay, I'm ready to go. But God, I pray you would help them see the joy in this prayer, in this model. And I pray this might would be the soundtrack of our lives, that the world might see us as people who are focusing on their heavenly father and that love him and know that he loves us and that are willing to say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth through my life as it is is and as it would be in heaven. God, would you free somebody today from anxiety and fear and worry? Would you help them to trust you with verse eight, but still pray verse 10? Would you help us all to focus on you and feel like it's not about what we bring before you, but come to you on the basis of who you are and what you've done and what you promise? There's so much freedom available if we will just accept it. God, help us to receive it today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.